0: Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. This is Kirk O'Bear talking to you this fine Saturday morning. You've heard me talk on the show before about how there's this push. In fact, there's been uh, federal funding set aside for the research into passive alcohol detection uh, technology to be installed in uh, motor vehicles, and there's a target date Think it's about ten years from now, if I don't, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, it's uh, the idea will be, if this continues to go um, unopposed, that uh, motor vehicles sold in the United States would have to be equipped with a uh, passive alcohol detection system, so that uh, the driver uh, can't have any alcohol in their system and operate a motor vehicle. Now, it's not clear. There aren't aren't any laws that relate to how this would be implemented, obviously, but the technology is out there. And there was just a report released earlier this week on the uh, viability of two different methods of passive alcohol detection. One would be uh, through the air and basically um, detecting the air around the driver to um, measure, you know, the breathing and whatever alcohol vapors are coming off the person, and the other, which I think is probably going to end up being the way this works, is through uh, uh, touch sensor technology on the steering wheel, and uh, that's similar to you know when you're at the gym and you can put your hands on the um, the pulse meter to tell you what your heart rate is. So they've been developing technology and testing it out uh, to see how these things work. And with the mind's eye towards this will one day be mandatory equipment in any motor vehicle. So interesting thing about that, the way it works now is that um, in pretty much all states now um, have implemented... An ignition interlock program. And this is an industry that has, uh, m- you know, mushroomed into a uh, huge, big business now. And uh, in Wisconsin, anyway, the way that it works is that if you have a drunk driving conviction, uh, whether if it's a second, third, fourth, whatever, or higher, then it's mandatory for a certain period of time, depending upon what number of fence it is. And it's also mandatory if, on a first offense, a person has an alcohol concentration, either breath or blood, that is 0.15 or higher. So it's a lot of cases where this device is being ordered to be installed on a vehicle. And now the way it works is if somebody, if it's a conviction that kicks this in, you know, somebody has to. Get it like basically as a penalty that they're not going to be trusted to operate their vehicles if they have any uh you know alcohol in their system now this is a an interesting product in the sense that it uh will prevent your car from starting if uh you there's alcohol detected by the thing that you blow into and then also at random intervals while you're driving you have to blow into this thing Maybe you've seen somebody with one. I mean, I've see people, at, you know, the drive-through sometimes or when they're uh, filling up at the gas station and someone's got to blow into their, blow into their car to get it to start. <laughs> um, but again, the, the way that this is being utilized now as this type of, it's like a type of punishment. And it's also like a, I guess you could say a um, public safety measure, but And I get the idea behind having this in all vehicles. It just seems like it's awfully Big Brother-ish, you know, that uh, you're going to be monitored constantly while you're driving. Now in the interest of safety and reducing, um, you know, deaths on the road, that I guess it makes sense. I mean, it's been a problem that we haven't really been able to uh, adequately address and really what's going on here, let's face it, this is an effort to change the culture. And there are many people that will tell you, especially um, advocates that uh, want to see fewer and fewer drunk driving incidents, will tell you that you know we have a culture, that many in this country, and probably especially in Wisconsin, where there's a certain degree of tolerance for consumption of alcohol and then driving. Just based on years of tradition i suppose and yes there's a a push to um put us in the realm where it would be zero tolerance and i'm not saying that would be a bad thing necessarily because the problem with how we have it right now is that it's this odd paradox Um, the reason that you're not supposed to be um capable of operating a motor vehicle is because your judgment is impaired If you've consumed too much alcohol or some other kind of intoxicant, you don't have the same reflexes, you don't have the same uh, mental, you know, acuity that you would otherwise have. But at the same time, we expect people, when they're in that state, to exercise the good judgment, not to get behind the wheel. So we're saying you don't have good judgment to drive, but you have to have good judgment not to drive. So... And, and this is created by the fact that, you know, studies have shown and uh, there's been dosing studies that even one drink, one drink, which is legal, you know, if you don't go over 0.08 for the legal limit in, in a, you know, a first or a second or third offense type scenario, um, you know, you can have alcohol and then drive, but you have to guess How much is too much? And you have to use your judgment to basically limit what it would otherwise be. So by virtue of that, we end up with a lot of situations where people either guess wrong or something happens where they think they can have one more or they feel fine. They feel okay. And that is really one of the big problems. But if the rule were no alcohol whatsoever, period, end of story, it would be much easier for people to be able to conform to the law. And then it wouldn't be about measuring yourself, uh, your own, how how you feel that you are at the time, because it's wrong, (laughs) almost always, right? And then it would be a very clear cut rule. I mean, good laws are the ones that people know how to follow and they know how to conform their behavior in order to be compliant with the law. Where it's a clear-cut issue, no drinking at all if you're going to drive. If you've had anything to drink, don't drive. Now I make that sound simpler than it really is, because you know, unless we had a law that says no drinking, which that's not going to happen, we already tried that once, didn't work. Then you have the issue of drinking uh, at a party, and it could be hour, and you don't drive. It could be hours and hours later. It could be the following morning. You know, and if you still have alcohol in your system and you're, you're not aware that you still have it, it's not fully metabolized, then, you know, you could be breaking that law inadvertently. So, you know, it's going to be an ongoing issue no matter how we tweak these laws. But um, the really, I think the challenge here is going to be how this technology might, um, you know, backfire, and. If it creates situations where this technology isn't good enough to be able to accurately detect or not detect alcohol in one system and think about all the different variables that are involved with that process, um, we're probably going to create a lot of problems <laughs> and And it won't eliminate drunk driving. It'll certainly make it, if this happens again, uh, it'll make it more complicated, I think. Now, they are working on improving this technology to make it more accurate. But but the way it's designed is that if it detects any alcohol whatsoever, then the vehicle won't work. Which means if that's going to be the standard, then laws all over the country are going to have to change in conformity with that. Now, it hasn't yet been determined if it if that's the only way that these passive detection devices would work. It could be, um, with a certain amount of tolerance. So let's say the legal limits 0.08 and then the passive alcohol system somehow would have to be calibrated so that it knows if you have less than 0.08 in your system. And I suspect that the technology is nowhere near able to do that right now. And of course they're working on it. Um, so that's kind of an interesting development we'll see what happens we've got well several years to see how this all plays out and what will end up happening but as updates come in i'll be sure to let you know right now we have to take a break so we're talking about passive alcohol detection technology that may find its way in our motor vehicles sometime in the future and when we left off before the break i was talking about how there's going to be this issue of how not just detection but measurement and i can tell you that the technology that exists right now for purposes of measuring uh, the alcohol is not precise enough to be relied upon scientifically Um, what i mean by that is that the common devices that are used in the field by police officers are these preliminary breath testing devices or a PBT and you'll note the word preliminary is in there right that means it's just a uh, kind of a not necessarily an accurate test and in fact it's not admissible in court because it's known that it's not accurate not accurate enough anyway to be relied upon for evidence purposes so that's the technology that we know exists and if we are making a further permutation here where it's not blowing into a device but just sensors within the cabin of a vehicle that are that is detecting the air around the driver or the um, the alcohol through a touch sensor on the steering wheel you know it creates this question about you know if there's going to be some kind of detection or measurement that it, you can see the possibilities where there's going to be problems. Now, here's the other thing. If it's a passive air detection, you know, like if it's actually measuring air, is it going to be a problem if your passenger has been drinking and you haven't and you're trying to drive and your car won't work? Or, you know, with the detection of alcohol with this touch sensor, all the different ways that... You know, there are different types of uh, organic compounds that look like or can be confused with ethanol. If it's not an actual blood test, which uses gas chromatography, even a breath test at the police station, which is an evidential breath test, um, has issues in terms of what's, what it's actually detecting. For example, there's something called a mouth alcohol reading in um, our intoximeter tests that we utilize. And when that happens, this is the test that's at the police station. I mean, it's a computer with a keyboard and a lot of inner working parts. Um, And it happens where somebody has uh, a ratio of exhaled air that contains a, a, a different or higher quantity Um, at the front end of the blow, so to speak, that can be attributed to alcohol that's not yet absorbed in a person's system. So mouth alcohol is what we call it, but it could be that it's uh, in the digestive system or in the throat or in the mouth or wherever, and there's there's vapors coming off of that. Now, the way we correct that, so to speak, in the actual evidentiary testing is that there's a 20-minute period that's where the officer will ensure that there's been no gum chewing, no drinking, obviously, no um vomiting or you know anything else, no foreign objects in the person's mouth and that's because there is at least a twenty minute period where one can be exhibiting or or having um, alcohol vapors. That are residual from consumption of an alcohol that happened, uh, alcoholic beverage that happened recently, or like gum and other things that can interfere with the test. So, are we talking about a system whereby you can't have gum in your mouth um, because it could throw off the the process? Are we going to have it where you try to start your car but you're going to have to wait 20 minutes before uh, the car will start? You see the problems here. And then on top of that, every time we create a law that is designed to um, enhance public safety, there will be people in situations where people try and have a workaround or a hack. (laughs) You know, when you buy uh, a vehicle nowadays and it has those rear camera functions, it's built in that if on that little screen that's in front of you, that you can activate the rear camera while you're backing up and then for a brief period of time while you're going forward if your car has that technology but it's also set up so that it doesn't stay that way so that you're not watching this screen and being distracted because again that's a safety issue but it's very easy if you go on youtube and uh you can buy i think even on amazon uh, these little kits that can be a hack where you can disable that built in safety function. Uh, likewise, if you have a car stereo system that can play DVDs, I had a car years ago that was capable of playing movies, but it would only play movies on the main screen of your car if you're not moving and the car is not in gear. Well, Of course, there was a hack for that, too, and you could adjust your system and and tweak it so that it would play a movie while you're driving, which you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to be enthralled in a movie and taking your eyes off the road, right? So imagine the market (laughs) will be in play for this type of thing, but also... You know, if it requires a sober person to put their hands on the wheel, well, that could be done with the passenger or somebody else that's there or whatever. You know, there's all kinds of I mean, I, I, I get the um, admirable goal of trying to come up with a creative solution. And if it does have that um, net effect of uh, making it so the roads are safer, fine. That's great. You know, we do need to do something. We need to do something. I'm just not sure if this is the great idea. But I was talking before about how this is really an effort to change the culture. And if people just got used to the fact that you don't drink anything and then drive, then, and if that was just something that was more commonly believed and more acceptable um, as a, you know, not an extreme view, then the overall effect may very well be that we. Um, are able to reduce these types of um, issues. So that the, imagine the impact that would have on going out to dinner, going to a tavern, um, etc. And if it meant that you couldn't have any alcohol whatsoever and then get behind the wheel, uh, it would be a pretty significant impact. Maybe that is what needs to happen, but you can see foresee the resistance that. There will be for that. Basically, bars wouldn't have any function anymore unless we built the infrastructure and had about 20 times more Ubers than what we have um, in order to facilitate that type of thing. Glass of wine with dinner, forget about it if you're going to drive at all. So, you know, you go out on a date and, well, one person can have a glass of wine, but the other person can't. and wine tasting events, forget about it, you know? <laughs> so if it's, if there is that cultural shift that's on the horizon, you know, this may be something that contributes to it. The other big area of concern is it is kind of shocking to think that, uh, in a free society, that it's going to be mandatory. If this happens that your car is going to measure you, it's going to test you, um, in terms of privacy concerns, I mean, even if the, it works like it's supposed to and it, your car doesn't start, well, that's data collection. Um, what about the possibility, knowing what we know about technology, if someone, at least under the law right now, gets behind the wheel and tries to start the car, but they are too drunk, that's an offense. Even if the car doesn't start, even if the person doesn't go anywhere, that's called that's called operating instead of driving, operating. Manipulation of any of the controls necessary to put the vehicle in motion. That includes turning the ignition. So I've had cases like this. An officer comes up on the scene and someone is getting in the car. They put the keys in the ignition and the officer says, excuse me, we got a call that somebody thinks you've had too much to drink. And then because the person put the keys in the ignition, that's an offense. That's potentially a crime, um, if you have any prior convictions. So if it's possible for a vehicle to detect alcohol in a person's system, and if it's possible for your vehicle to know that you just tried to start the vehicle with too much alcohol in your system, I can see the potential here for it notifies the police that you just committed a crime and they come and arrest you. Think about that. Wow. All right. Time for a break. We'll be right back. And we're back. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, a little more. I know I've talked about it before, but just some further observations on the decline of uh, enforcement of due process in our court systems. And an ongoing issue in our justice system, if we can call it that, is this struggle between efficiency, um, we call it judicial economy, caseload, how many cases are being charged, how many cases are going to trial, what legal issues are raised in a particular fact scenario, and how those things work through the system. And Recently, of course, COVID has had a major impact on that because we went for really over a year where there were no trials being conducted, and that is still something that we're continuing to feel the effects of. Uh, my trial calendar, for example, is jam-packed. I mean, I'm doing basically a trial per week from now until well into next year, but um, And this is all because of the backlog that accumulated during the time when we weren't doing much now i say we weren't doing much but every day during the pandemic was still filled with juggling cases all day every day in court just no trials because we couldn't bring jurors in for that important function but um going back to when i first started practicing law uh in the 1990s We had a much more robust process of kind of filtering out cases. And that's because preliminary hearings used to be much more significant back then. Nowadays, uh, hearsay is admitted. Um, Judges do not consider, are not allowed to consider affirmative defenses, such as self-defense or anything like that. And um, there are a lot of considerations that go towards giving the prosecution a break, so to speak, if they don't have things quite worked out yet, which is ironic because uh, when we have cases that are charged and then later on the prosecution figures out it's not as uh, good of a case as they thought, they face resistance from some judges uh, in terms of approving a dismissal or an amendment to a different type of charge. And what I hear often is that You made a decision, Mr. Prosecutor, Madam Prosecutor, to charge this case this particular way. And now you're saying that you were wrong. And how is that a responsible exercise of authority, etc.? Well, back then, before all these rules went into effect that made it so preliminary hearings are much less significant, it was a good thing for the judge, the defense, and the prosecution to see what kind of problems might be with the case. And this might sound odd, but it was also a chance for a prosecutor to see how important witnesses in their case would answer questions when on the stand. Now, since hearsay is admissible now, and it's gone so far as in some counties, I just had a hearing a couple weeks ago where this happened prosecutor calls somebody, a person to the stand at a preliminary hearing and says, Mr. Witness, are you familiar with the criminal complaint in this case? Which, by the way, the DA's office drafted. The witness says, yes, I've reviewed it. And then the prosecutor says, does it appear to be um, a fair and accurate summary of what um, some of the evidence in this case is? The witness then says, yes, yes, it does. Then they move to admit it, and then they don't ask any more questions. And so <laughs> it's a power play here because they're shielding um, the defense from learning anything or being able to ask any questions beyond where they have control over the information. And by the way, a criminal complaint does not have to contain all of the evidence. in a It's not supposed to in a case. It's just enough to satisfy that fairly low burden of probable cause um, upon reading it. So if you read it, whether these facts are true or not, then, you know, you have to assume they are for purposes of if probable cause is stated in the complaint, then the case moves forward. But back when we actually had live testimony with real witnesses, there was, uh, you know, the ability to actually bring out more than just what the prosecutor wanted to reveal. Um, Now, there's a lot of law that relates to all of this, and it's technically true that uh, a prosecutor should include in a criminal complaint, evidence that would have um, cast some doubt on whether the uh, allegations are true or not, or if they're supported based upon a cognizable legal theory. But that's a process whereby after the fact, when the defense discovers that there were other factors that should have been included, uh, that could have made a difference, there's a challenge in that way. However, the procedure is something that doesn't really, you know, bring much of a remedy in that situation. The judge is allowed to basically look at the complaint as a whole and if in spite of the information that should have been included, there's still probable cause, which again is a very loosey-goosey type of term, um, with no numeric sort of way of measuring it, which is impossible. Um, you know, the, the remedy doesn't really do anything, because the judge will very likely say, well, in spite of all that, it still states, still states an offense and it's still probable cause. But going back to when these things were more meaningful, It would be um, a very useful tool for prosecutors to really size up the strength of their case. And remember, um, back then, that meant that prosecutors had to actually talk to witnesses to prepare for these hearings. They would subpoena somebody. It could be an alleged victim. It could be a witness. It could be a significant uh, investigator involved in the case. But they'd actually have to prepare for this hearing and sit down and talk to them. Uh, The way it works now, because they don't have to do that, prosecutors tend to not talk to witnesses until way, way, way down the road when the case has been pending for a while and trial is coming up. In fact, cases that, you know, if a defense lawyer walks in and says, judge, this isn't going to be a trial, we're just trying to negotiate something, we'll work something out. And if it does get worked out, odds are that the prosecutor never talked to any witnesses or really did a deep dive into the case to see what the evidence was really all about. And that's a problem because in order to get the process to work the way it should, cases have to be set for trial. And there's this attitude out there. Uh, A lot of prosecutors act like uh, if the defendant isn't, you know, dying to plead guilty as quickly as possible and, you know, make a life altering decision about how their case is going to be uh, resolved, then it's something that they tend to hold against a defendant for exercising their rights. It's really pretty wild when you think about it because all of this, and we go overboard. Uh, judges, it almost seems like overkill when a judge is accepting a plea from somebody. There's like, 40 questions that a judge has to ask to make sure that the person knows what they're doing. They've had enough time. They've gotten the assistance of counsel. They know they have explored different defenses, you know, because they don't want somebody coming back later saying, Oh, I didn't know any of that stuff. Uh, it kind of just got rammed through. So even though the system has a preference for ramming things through and resolving things quickly with very little, um, you know, interaction or, or advocacy, I would say, just like, hey, what can we do to get rid of this thing mentality? Uh, then we're in court and the judge is like, well, you know, you can really have more time if you need it. No, you, you're not going to get it, but you know, the judge will ask that. And, uh, you know, it all contributes to a process whereby if the norm is that this is what people are doing, On a regular basis, it it creates the expectation that someone's not going to exercise their very important rights, which then leads to prosecutors resenting if they actually have to prepare for a trial, you know, so this is all bad for the system because it just lends itself to straying further and further from what should be our goal to have this justice process be a search for the truth. That's in the jury instruction that the judge reads to every uh, juror, every panel, every jury pool uh, is part of the instructions. that This is a process we are, where we are seeking to find the truth. And if it's built into the process that there are limitations on that happening just for convenience sake, uh, that's a very bad thing. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. So we were talking about preliminary hearings and it occurred to me, I should probably back up and explain why those hearings happen in a misdemeanor case in Wisconsin. There is no preliminary hearing. Um, It's only when it's a felony case. So in other words, a at least one crime has been alleged where the maximum penalty is more than is a one year period or more. So prison. So prison cases are the ones that, uh, where there's the possibility of that being in play and all the other consequences that flow from a felony conviction. When it's that level of offense, then there's this extra part of the process whereby a defendant's entitled to have a preliminary hearing before the case goes forward. And this is originally designed to be something that helps protect citizens against the, um, either false allegations or flimsy allegations, or if there's something missing when you look at an analysis of what the prosecutor intends to prove later in the process. In other words, a a view of the evidence to see if it passes that basic hurdle. And it's supposed to be there because the judge who was not part of the drafting of the criminal complaint, um, is supposed to be neutral and detached from the process and, um, can evaluate independently whether or not there is enough you know, to go forward. It's not designed to be a trial. It's not supposed to be something where it's a full-blown exposition of every piece of evidence that's there. And by the way, discovery obligations, in other words, the uh, obligation of the prosecutor to turn over their evidence doesn't kick in until after that preliminary hearing. So a lot of times, you know, we're going into this process blindly. But again, this is in cases where there's a higher risk that the consequences are going to be more serious where we have this extra hearing. Again, doesn't exist in misdemeanor cases or in uh, ordinance or citation type cases, only if it, there's at least one felony alleged. So um, what we were saying before the break is that there's that been this... It, basic erosion of that process which has all been designed uh in in the name of efficiency to move them along and really you know it doesn't say this in the law but it's also kind of designed to make sure that uh, a lot of defense lawyers and defendants don't see any merit in having a preliminary hearing remember back when these changes were being proposed and the primary uh advocate for these, uh, basically watering down of this process came from the district attorneys association in Wisconsin, which is a professional organization that if you are a district attorney, or I believe a member of any prosecutor's office, you can be part of this, you know, professional organization. And they lobby on behalf of prosecutors with, uh, our legislators and, There was a push back then, and the argument was, hey, preliminary hearings are kind of a waste of time. 99.999% of them get bound over where, you know, the prosecutor wins. More and more, and this was true back then, more and more defense lawyers are waiving them anyway. And why do we need to have the court system bogged down with... um, this procedure that, you know, takes court time and everything else, when in reality you should just trust the prosecutor to have figured all that out, to make a very good effort to, uh, draft a criminal complaint that is, uh, encapsulates the, the necessary evidence to show that there has been a crime committed and that there's really no problem with, um, watering it down to the point where it's a mere formality because it was kind of going in that direction anyway. Well, they convinced the legislators that to do that, you know, there was opposition to it, but you know, when you're talking about elected officials that, um, are getting input from a prosecutorial organization, they listen because that's very, uh, it's another feather in the cap. Where they can say, "Hey, I did this thing to make it so our streets are safer, etc." You know, you hear that argument a lot. But uh, what's been happening, at least in my experience, is that it adds another layer of imprecision to this entire process. And we should be doing more to try and improve this process rather than make it, you know, more efficient. <laughs> And I, I can tell you the pressure in, when you're in court uh, to you know, go with the flow and cooperate with the prosecutor and basically work things out and play nice is palpable. You can, you can feel it. And a lot of defense lawyers just simply don't have the time, resources or energy, I suppose, to fully explore and keep this system honest. When I say keep it honest. that assumes that it's honest to begin with, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, these it's a critical aspect of us having faith if there is to be faith in the the reliability of our outcomes. And uh, when there's too much power on one side of this equation, it's not good for society. People end up wrongfully convicted of things. It causes us to question our own you know ability to lead responsible safe lives if you could be targeted uh, based on any number of factors and it goes into this somewhat arbitrary process uh, people don't have faith in the government at all at that point and it's understandable Um, if you don't see evidence in on a daily basis Uh, people's rights being, you know, vigorously defended, then, you know, that's the recipe for big problems. And then it starts to look much more like countries that uh, don't recognize uh, the rights of an accused like we do, like we're supposed to. There was this report that just came out earlier this week about these so-called vocational re-education camps that China has denied existed for a very long time but in reality what it is is that they are um, segregating mostly people of uh, Muslim faith but also people that are political dissidents and putting them in these you know let's face it they're prisons you know and they're trying and convicting people of crimes against the state, which may be as simple as uh, an allegation that someone doesn't fully agree with everything that the government does. Um, and I'll tell you, there is no due process in that, in that <laughs> system. It's basically a sham. And that's a, you know, totalitarian type of government where you live in fear of the authorities, um, so yeah, it's just been released that it was a UN report on not only the existence of this process, but how it has resulted in you know confirmation of massive uh, human rights abuses that are occurring, and people that are being basically locked up uh, for decades without any meaningful. Um, hearing is to determine whether they've done something or what it is, and then you add to that the fact that there are laws that have nothing to do with whether someone did something or didn't do something, but it's more of a purge of the undesirables in society. Uh, you know, the more that we let our system become resembling that, and certainly it's not that we have a we're supposed to have a very robust system that prevents. The government from having that kind of power. But if we start chipping away at the bits and pieces of what is supposed to keep the integrity of this process, that's what the future could look like. And you hear it all the time. There's evidence of that attitude on TV ads when people that are running for judge or for prosecutor, or, you know, DA or whatever, or legislators that are trying to keep their jobs or get elected... They do this whole tough on crime thing, like uh, as if there are people out there that are soft on crime. Well, there isn't anybody who's soft on crime. No one says, hey, I'm going to be soft on crime, so vote for me. No, they say, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff that's going to make it so, uh, you know, criminals get convicted and go behind bars. And when you make these broad policy type statements and have a broad policy type application, it It leaves behind the individual aspects of any given case, which is what is most important, that every case is different, and no matter what the allegations are, Mm -hmm. citizens are entitled to their rights, and you can't just gloss over that in the interest of political expediency. Anyway, that's my rant. (laughs) Sorry that went on for so long, but anyway, that's all the time we have for this week. Please tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.